0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. As we open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 9, I want to remind all of us that God is the hero of the Bible. That is, this is His story. So when we read a passage of Scripture, as I'm about to do, we should ask ourselves the question, what does this passage have to say about God? What does it tell us about His nature and His attributes? Well, the passage we're about to read is a very familiar one. It tells the story of a miracle that Jesus performed during His public ministry in Galilee. In fact, it's the only miracle other than the resurrection that we find in all four Gospel accounts. We commonly refer to it as the feeding of the 5,000. And it is a wonderful example of God's common grace. Grace as you know is God's unmerited favor when He gives things to people that they don't deserve and they have not earned. And when we add the modifying word common in front of grace it tells us that these blessings that we are going to read about today are common to all humanity. That is they are not reserved for only God's elect, not just for Christians in other words, but for all kinds of people. So, let's read the text and we'll explore this concept of common grace in a little more depth. Luke nine eleven. But the crowds were aware of this and followed Him. And welcoming them, He began speaking to them about the Kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now, the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to Him, Send the crowds away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up into heaven, He blessed them and broke them, and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full." May the Lord add His blessing to the hearing and reading of His Word. One of the reasons I think that this story is so familiar to us, and why we tell it over and over, is because of its sheer size. Usually when Jesus performs a miracle as recorded in the gospel it's an individual that receives the benefit. Healing a lame man or, or raising Lazarus for example from the dead seem to be a singular event. And we have noted along those lines through our study of Luke that Christ is a very personal Savior and He's not a distant or aloof deity. But there are times when groups of people benefit from a miracle We saw that a few weeks ago as uh, Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, at least 12 others benefited from that in that little boat. There are other miracles such as the healing of 10 lepers that we find groups of people healed at one time. But in this particular miracle, the largest in quantity that we find in the New Testament, at least 5,000 people benefited from the Lord's grace. I say at least 5,000 because Luke points out here that there were 5,000 men present. We expect there were at least that many women and children, so perhaps the number was as much as 15,000 that the Lord Jesus fed that day. And Jesus was gracious to all of them in at least three ways that I want to see today. Number one is His reception of them was full of grace. Look at verse 10. Because you have to see verse 10 to understand the conjunction in verse 11 of, of but. He says, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to Him of all that they had done. Taking them with Him, He withdrew by Himself to a city called Bethsaida, but the crowds were aware of this and followed Him. Remember Jesus had given authority to these men who we now call apostles, sent out ones, to go to the various villages of Galilee where they were to cast out demons and heal the sick and to preach the kingdom. And now they had come back after the appointed time to see Jesus, to report of all that the Lord had done through them. And after he heard that report, the plan was to go over to Bethsaida, I take it for a time of uh, vacation, relaxation. And then comes verse 11, but, but the crowds heard about this and so they met them there. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when we feel like we deserve a vacation or a day off, we're sometimes put off by people who have needs. Jesus was not. He didn't say, I'm off the clock. He didn't say, this is my day off. Look what he did. He says, he welcomed them. What a graceful reception that was. And you know, if you have done ministry very long at all, that people's emergencies don't happen on your schedule. So the crowds understood that Jesus would receive them. And he of course did. Speaking of the crowds, the crowds had swollen multiplied thousands by this point in Jesus' public ministry. They had heard of His power, they had heard about His compassion, they had heard about His authoritative teaching. And this was a very densely populated region during those times. There were over 200 villages that surrounded the Sea of Galilee, and, and probably representatives from all of them had made their way to Bethsaida to hear Jesus teach and to hopefully perform a miracle for them. And you see His reaction. He welcomed them. I think this speaks very clearly to the Christian principle of hospitality. I think it's a lost principle, unfortunately, but uh, there is something that the Bible holds up called hospitality that Christians are to be known for. That is, we're to be welcoming, we're to be generous, we're to make people feel at home, and this is what Jesus often did. We should never, as Christians, view human need as an obstacle to our happiness. Now, we know we're viewing human need as an obstacle to our happiness when the phone rings and we roll our eyes. Or we sigh deeply if someone says they have a need. Now, here's what happens. If you view other people's needs as obstacles to your own happiness, you're going to be a very bitter person. And you'll find yourself bitter and angry towards people that Jesus loves and that He died for. And so, set your default setting to yes, to generosity and to kindness. This is what Jesus did. In fact, we have a rule of thumb on the third floor where I work uh, among our receptionists and, and all the ladies that work in the office and our pastors. That is, when someone comes to see one of us during the week, we want them to feel like they were the most important person we saw all day. Now, we fail at that sometimes. I do because we're all human. We have bad days, but that's our aim and ambition that anyone we talk to on the phone, anyone that comes to our office, we want them to leave feeling like they're the most important person we saw all day. I think that's how people felt when they were in the presence of Jesus. He didn't rush them, He didn't overlook them, He listened to them, and He met their need. Now, the second thing we see, not only did He give them a graceful reception, but uh, He was gracefully compassionate to them. After Jesus welcomed them, the Scripture says He did two things. Look at verse 11, He began speaking to them about the Kingdom of God and curing those who had a need of healing. He spoke to them about the Kingdom of God. He had compassion for their souls, in other words. Sometimes when we talk to strangers and, and we see they have a physical need, we sometimes meet that physical need, but we fail to meet their greater need, which is to know the Gospel. And sometimes we do that in the name of compassion. That is, we don't want them to feel bad if we tell them they are a sinner, and so we just meet the physical need and let them go on without hearing the Gospel. Listen, failure to share the whole Gospel is never to be confused with compassion. The most compassionate thing you can do for any person is to tell them that they are a sinner, but Jesus died for sinners. And this, so, the second thing He did is not only does he, is He compassionate for their soul, He's also compassionate towards their bodies. He cured those in need of, of healing. You will note here that it doesn't say that He healed those who believed in His message about the kingdom. It says He healed all those who had need of healing. That speaks of His common grace. Now, when I say common grace, I'm not saying common meaning it's not worth very much. Sometimes when something doesn't have much value, we say, oh, that's very common. When we say common, we mean that all humanity benefits from it. It's not just a blessing or a grace reserved for believers. I have a CD of songs in my minivan, and I do drive a minivan, proud to say, that that plays almost constantly on a loop when I'm on the road. It was given to me by one of our pastors here. And all the songs of the CD are based on the Psalms. And one of the most often repeated refrains on that CD based on the Psalms is this, the Lord is gracious and slow to anger. He is rich in love and He is good to all. And over and over it says that the Lord is gracious, He's slow to anger, He's rich in love and He's good to all. Those four lines really summarize the definition of common grace. It's based on verses like Psalm 145.9 which says, The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies over all His works. That is, even those who reject God's offer of salvation receive goodness and blessing from Him in some measure. You say, well, how is that the case? Well, let me give you a few examples. Let's do a little exercise this morning. All in here are just take a big deep breath of air in through the nose and out the mouth. We were all just beneficiaries of God's common grace, God's atmosphere that He created. And guess what? Not only were Christians in this room beneficiaries of God's atmosphere, everyone outside the 7.2 billion people in the world that just took a breath are also. Now that's just one example, the most basic example of common grace. But just think about that, every time you breathe a breath of air, God's been good to you. But then there are more specific things like marriage and family and, and children. Peter says in one of his epistles that marriage is the grace of life. Now take from that it, it's not just something reserved for Christians. In fact, anywhere you go in the world, I've not been able to go anywhere in the world that I didn't find the institution of marriage had already beaten me there. Everywhere in the world there is the institution of marriage. And that is traced back, I believe, to what God said about Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. And so he gave us this common grace called marriage. It's found in every culture. And then from marriage comes, of course, children. The Bible says, behold, children are a blessing from the Lord, but it's not just saved people that have children that love their children or get joy from their children. Your lost friends and neighbors love and enjoy their children as well. And just everyday things like beauty, we have a gentleman in the room right here who wrote a wonderful book on beauty, aesthetics, and how God shows himself to be very wonderful and strong to all people through the beauty of, of nature. But there's another kind of common grace that sometimes we don't think about, and that is the fact that God is at work restraining sin in the world. You say, Well, I wish He would restrain it a little more because there's plenty of sin in the world. You turn on the news and someone's driving a truck on a sidewalk and mowing down people or shooting up a school. But the truth is if God were not restraining sin in the world in some measure this world would be unlivable. And so we need to thank, the God. thank, thank God for all of those common graces. But the example of common grace we see in our text this morning is, is a very basic one. It, it's one that those of us living here in the Western world often too often take for granted. And that is the common grace of food, nutritious food. Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey and they come to a place called Lystra. And in Lystra, Paul heals a lame man. And when the people of Lystra who were pagans by the way, they worshiped all kinds of false idols saw what Paul did in the name of the Lord, they said, this must be a God. In fact, they tried to make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas and this was their reaction. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now what vain things? These statues, these false and pagan gods they were worshiping. Paul says they're vain, they're empty, they're useless. So, he's calling them to turn from worship of false idols to the living God. And then he describes that living God. He says, he made heaven and earth and the sea that is all in them. In the generations gone by he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness. Even though God often will allow a person to allow their sin to go to its logical conclusion. There's never a moment in which God doesn't leave a witness of Himself in that person and in that person's surroundings. Paul says in Romans that all men are without excuse because all men can see God's divine power and attributes by what has been made. That is in nature, in God's beauty, in His creation, in the animals, in the plant life, we see there is a powerful God and He is a provider. He says, all men without excuse. Then he goes on to say that God has written a knowledge of himself on every heart. But through man's own sinfulness, he has subdued and tried to water down that evidence. But it's still there. And one of the great evidences of God's nature is the fact, Paul says, listen to this, that he gave you good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now, he's writing to people that don't even acknowledge the existence of Jehovah God, much less worship Him. And he said, even from the food you eat and the rain from Heaven that causes the crops to grow and the joy you get in your life, that's common grace that God has given to you. And He gives to every man and woman today. The sun rose this morning. In every one of the 7.2 billion people on planet Earth, Will enjoy its warmth. It rained here in the Keller area last week and all of us, whether we're Christians or not, will be sustained by that water. So, what this passage teaches, remember our question? What does this passage tell us about the nature and the attributes of God? What does this passage, the feeding of the 5,000, tell us about God? Well, it tells us the same thing we find about God's nature throughout the Bible. One, He's kind, isn't He? The psalmist is right. He is kind. Slow to anger, that is, he is patient. Even those pagans who for generations had turned their back on God, he continued to bless with food and shelter. He is compassionate. Jesus says if you've seen him, that is Christ, you have seen the Father. The Bible says he's the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus, well Jesus was compassionate, he was kind, and he is patient. And that has not changed by the way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if he was kind and patient, compassionate, 2000 years ago, he is today. And there's one more aspect though of God's grace and his common grace. And that is that God's grace is abundant. God's blessings are abundant. Look at verse 12. Now the day was ending. and The 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. These apostles had a long way to go in their sanctification. Here's Jesus, He's just doing miracle after miracle. He's not complained at all. But the sun starts to go down and the twelve come to Him and say, send these people away. I think in their tone there's a little bit of jealousy. Because I think they were looking forward to having Jesus to themselves for a while and that they felt was taken from them when this crowd showed up that day. But Jesus wasn't angry at the crowds. He got a little angry at the apostles it seems because He says, you give them something to eat. They said, let them fend for themselves. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And remember I said that this miracle is found in all four gospel accounts. And we piece those four accounts together. We get some great detail that Luke leaves out. Luke just says, the 12 said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Well, the other gospels tell us that there was a little lad there. Do you remember? Philip is identified as coming to Jesus and. He said, look, if we had 200 denarii, and denarii was a sum of money that was equivalent to one day's manual labor. If we had 200 days labor worth of money, it would not be enough to buy food enough so that everybody here could have just a little snack. He says, we don't have that kind of money. In fact, we wouldn't have any place to buy it anyway. We're out here in the middle of nowhere and the 7-Eleven's already closed. (laughs) And so, what are we going to do? Well, Jesus said, you give them something to eat. They said. We don't have anything but five loaves and two fishes. The other gospel tells us it was Andrew who introduced a little boy who apparently his mother had packed him a lunch. Five little barley cakes, the Bible says, and two little fish. And he was willing to share that. And the Lord took that. And what does he do? The Bible says, uh, verse 16, and he took the five loaves and two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples To set before the people, and they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up twelve baskets full." Now this is a miracle, isn't it? It's a big miracle. Well people who don't believe in miracles have to have some way to explain this away. And so, you know a couple hundred years ago there was a great movement, I've told you before among the liberal theologians, primarily in Germany, that said, look, we've got to explain everything in the Bible with scientific terms. And they were sort of embarrassed of the idea that people were saying that that this was a miracle that Jesus took literally five little cakes and two fish and fed 15,000 people. And so, they began to come up with all sorts of theories about how He did it. And one of the theories was that Jesus just convinced everyone who had brought lunch to share it with those who didn't have any, and it was a miracle of sharing. That's pretty weak. And then other people said, well, that obviously isn't the case. So what Jesus did is that for weeks in advance, he stored up food in a cave, and he stood in front of the cave and sort of reached behind him and kept reaching behind him until everybody had enough. Isn't that silly? But that, those are the links that people will go to who stubbornly, willfully refuse to believe that Jesus is God. Well, it's no problem for God to feed a seafood buffet. After all, John chapter 1 says all things were made through Jesus and for Jesus, and nothing was made that has been made except through him. If, if Jesus can speak a word and the orbits of the planets are set in path, not too hard for him to feed 15,000 people. And so he does. And he does it in abundance. And, and let me say to you that God's grace is abundant, isn't it? We used to sing a song, marvelous, wonderful, abundant grace, grace that is greater than our sins. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the lady with the issue of blood and Jesus said, I felt power go out from me. And I said at that time, that doesn't mean that Jesus' power was diminished in any way. It was just redistributed. And so God is infinite, which means that He has no lack. He doesn't have to be recharged, in other words, with, with His power. And so when we talk about His grace, it's the same way. You say, well, well, the Lord's been saving people for 2,000 years. Does He have enough left? Yes, He does. His grace is abundant. His saving grace is abundant. And I would say His common grace is abundant. I'm I'm a child of the the 70s and 80s, coming right at the end of the Cold War, and we were all told we'd never live to see 30. And uh, we'd all be out of oil by 1990. You remember? We'd all be pedaling bicycles because there wouldn't be any oil. You know, I read an article the other day that says there is more oil today that we know about than ever before. In fact, it's so abundant that we don't know what we're going to do with it all. Well, that's just one example of the Lord's common grace. He gives grace in in abundance. I I love to tell you about my garden. And uh, I planted my garden the other day, and, and I began to wonder, how much should I plant? And so I went online, and I typed in the question, how much land do you need to feed one family? And the answer was 100 square feet can feed a family of four for a year, if you manage it correctly. Do you know how much 100 square feet is? That's 10 feet by 10 feet. And so the truth is, there's enough arable or farmable land in the state of Texas to feed the world multiple times over. Why is there hunger in the world? It's because it's poorly distributed, right? And primarily because men are evil and they are greedy. And that food that is available to people who are hungry doesn't get to them because of the sinfulness of greedy men. So, that's just one way of saying that the Lord's grace is abundant. In fact, we see also God's attribute that He's a God of order. After Jesus took those loaves and fish, He said to His disciples, have the people sit down in groups of about 50 each. And so they had them all sit down. Now, I don't know the significance of the groups of 50. We see something similar to this that Moses did in the Old Testament. I think it just tells us that God is a God of order. If Jesus just started handing out food, it would be uh, chaos. People trying to cut to the front of the line. And so He sits people down in order, and it's an orderly distribution of the food because He certainly understands human nature But not only was there enough, as Philip said, for everyone to have a little snack, this was an all-you-could-eat buffet. In fact, the Scripture says they had 12 baskets full left over. And there's been lots of allegorical sermons preached about what these 12 baskets full of leftovers signify. And and, and maybe they're right, but I don't think so. I, I think it's just very obvious why there's 12 baskets, because there were 12 apostles, right? And Jesus was very shortly going to be crucified and resurrected and after 40 days he was going to ascend back into Heaven. And They were going to be left here to do the ministry as the Holy Spirit empowered them. And there would be times in each of their lives where they would have physical need. And they needed to have some memories of how the Lord had provided in the past. Charles Swindoll calls this our bear stories. Does everybody ought to have a bear? He takes that from David and Goliath. Do you remember? where little David came and there's Goliath and no one would go out to fight him. And David said, I'll fight him. And Saul says, oh, you're just a lad. He's been a warrior since he was a lad. How are you going to fight Goliath? David said, well, when I was a shepherd watching over my father Jesse's sheep, a bear came along and the Lord helped me to slay him. His bear story. He remembered for a present need how God had helped him in the past. Now you think for a moment. If you've been a Christian very long, Every one of you, certainly every family here has a story that you can point to how the Lord provided that you remember, right? We do in our family, we have several of them. And every time there's a need we remind each other of that one. Hey, don't worry, God did this and He'll do it again. And I think every time they held an empty basket they looked down into it and remember when they took up a basket full of leftovers. Now. What are then the appropriate responses to God's common grace? Remember, common grace grace are those blessings we receive by virtue of God's goodness, not because we're saved. What are some of those things? Well, let's just rehearse them. First is life. Everyone in this room has life. Your heart is beating. You ought to give thanks to the Lord for that, and we should commit as long as there is life in our body, to use our time wisely for the Lord's glory. There are some in this room who are alive, but their bodies are racked with pain. They don't enjoy good health. If you do enjoy good health, thank the Lord for that and determine to use the good health while you have it for His glory. Many in here have enjoyed marriage and the fruit of marriage, children. We lost two dear saints this week in our church. Both of them were married for 69 years. Two different couples, both married for 69 years. What a joy it is. Peter says the grace of life through marriage and and the joy of our children. You say, well, you know, I'm alive. I'm somewhat healthy, but I've never been married or I certainly don't have any children. Well, you have other things to give thanks for, the everyday blessings of life. If you participated, that that exercise we did, you breathe in and out. Give the Lord praise for that. In fact, the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you have breath, you have reason to praise Him. And I suspect everyone in here has had something to eat today. If you haven't, you soon will. It's in abundance everywhere around us. That's why I think we take it for granted. We teach our children to say a little blessing before they eat. And sometimes they rush through it. It's some perfunctory thing we do to get to the good stuff. No, the blessing is the good stuff, right? Take the time to meaningfully tell the Lord of your thankfulness for His blessings of food. But, but the real truth about God's common grace is that they point us to our need for special grace. When we talk about special grace, we're talking about salvation. You see, It rains on the just and the unjust. The sun came up and will warm the just and the unjust. Most people today will enjoy a good meal whether they know the Lord or not, whether they're thankful for it or not. And and the Lord's kindness should draw us to him and to meet our greatest need, which is forgiveness. yet the Bible says that's not what generally happens. In fact, according to Romans, what happens is that we harden our heart and become deeper and deeper in our sin and unthankfulness, which tells you how lost we really are. In fact, the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sin, and our greatest need is for spiritual life. Remember that little girl that Jesus raised from the dead we saw a couple weeks ago? After he touched her and she came back to life, then he said, give her something to eat. He met her physical needs. But what was her greatest need? Life. Dear friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, your greatest need is not physical healing. You may have that need. Your greatest need is not food, clothing, and shelter. Of course you have those needs. Your greatest need is salvation. And next week we're going to look at God's special grace in the light of the common grace we've looked at today. But you don't have to wait till next week to be saved. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you will confess your sins today right where you are, He'll give you the grace to repent of those sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus, to receive His free gift of salvation. His grace is abundant Just as his grace was abundant enough to feed 15,000 people a day, his grace to save is abundant enough to save everyone in this room. And his power is not diminished one iota to do that. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for your common grace. Father, we live in a place of abundance. Sometimes that abundance causes us to forget our blessings. And as believers, Lord, we need to be thankful. So Lord, I thank you for health. Thank you for life. I thank you for marriage and children. I thank you for friendships that we have here. I thank you for this church. Thank you that the sun came up this morning. Thank you that you gave us good rains last week. Lord, I'm most thankful, though, for Jesus who died in my place on the cross. And Lord, I pray if there'd be one here today who does not know him, as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would repent and believe and be saved. Lord, when that happens, we're gonna give you all the praise, the honor, and glory, even as we thank you for the everyday blessings of life. We thank you for salvation, made possible through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we pray these things in his name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.